Butcher Talk. Hey, what's up? Uh, this is another episode of the podcast. I'm Zach Butcher. As always, I have uh, my hetero life mate, Blade Brown, and this week we're joined by uh, Mark McCoy. Mark, hello. How are you? Hey, guys. How's it going? It's going well. Doing all right. <laughs> yeah, it's Friday. I released an album today. Works over. Oh, congrats. The sun is shining. Thanks. Very excited. What's your album? Oh, uh, it is six sounds for six six. We keep we kept missing the mark in June every year for four years. So we finally got to put it out <laughs> this year. <laughs> uh, it's just a little I'm... noisy for you. Oh, nice. My birthday is June sixth. Happy birthday! Whoa, right on. Hey, thanks. You know, um, when uh, what was that? In 2006, when I turned 30, what was it? 31. I had a seance at for my birthday. So we, we hired this medium who was really creepy, <laughs> and we held a seance. And this guy got possessed at the party. Hell. And yeah. those that were there live to tell it it was for real right on hell yeah and he was speaking um in like a weird voice he went into a trance and started walking around like a zombie and everyone was horrified what a way to spend it was like this yeah totally (laughs) six 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 now were you excited about this happening on your birthday or were you just like holy shit what's happening to me oh yeah i was all about it i thought it was cool you know i invited all these people and everyone crammed into this thing and we sat, it was like straight out of a movie. I mean, we sat at a table holding hands and um, this medium con- – well, one of the guys that was there actually knew Kurt Cobain. So the first we tried to contact Kurt Cobain and we didn't get him. But something yeah. happened where this guy – and, you know, I, I've always been skeptical on this stuff. I really don't have an opinion. But what I, what I did see really put into question whether or not – the afterlife is real or there's some sort of i don't know i don't know what happened but um a guy got possessed and started chanting and he um has never been the same since i'm told okay (laughs) it's a long segue no it was a guy i knew it was like my ex-girlfriend's friend that she went to to college with and he was like some sports writer guy Okay. And he was very, he was super skeptical. They had like no interest in, he was just kind of there at this party. And, um, he went into a trance and started moaning and gasping for air. It was really freakish. And I don't think he was faking it. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. You said you turned 31 that year? Yeah. All right. 31. Well, you know, I mean, that's still that's a very memorable birthday to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm gonna uh, match that this year. You know, I think I'll yeah. sell out for dinner or something. <laughs> um, so what we always do, uh, we ask uh, like your relationship and your earliest memory of horror. Where are you? Uh, oh, where okay. are you at on that pre-seance? Oh yeah. Um, like the first time I was exposed to horror, you mean? Yeah, yeah. If it was a movie, TV, comic book, whatever. Oh, uh, well, there's two memories, I think, that really stand out to me. The first movie I ever saw in general was Frankenstein, and that was when I was three. I remember yeah. being at the neighbor's house on Halloween, and they were playing Frankenstein on TV, and I remember being kind of creeped out by it, but really enjoying it and just being enthralled by the characters. Yeah. Um, 
But I think what really set it in motion was when I saw Salem's Lot when I was uh, six, I think, that uh, I, was, I was being babysat by my uncle, who I adore. And I don't think he really realized what he was getting into with that movie. He hadn't seen it. Yeah. And there's some really shocking scenes in it. And that really freaked me out. But of course, you know, it, it draws you in and you, and you become curious and you want to see more. And now I, I love the film. It's kind of an awkward movie. It's so long. But um, yeah, I, I think it was originally like a TV miniseries, but they just keep promoting yeah. it as a movie. And you're like, this is like four hours. <laughs> yeah, it's so long. And there's so many characters, but I actually really like it. And I prefer it far more than the book. Even though the book has details that I think were omitted that would have benefited the film. You know, the, the, the book is brutal and it has this awesome ending where like the whole town gets set ablaze. But um, the film itself is so atmospheric and so memorable in so many scenes. It's actually legitimately terrifying. And it's, um, you know, it's a TV movie. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't know until like last week or maybe it was earlier this week there was a return to Salem's Lot movie and it's getting a Blu-ray release coming up. Oh yeah. It's horrible. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of a comedy. Oh, <laughs> it's a Larry Cohen movie. Oh, okay. Well, that's a little more yeah. forgiving, I guess, but his movies are still yeah. kind of rough. <laughs> yeah. It's got that guy, Michael Moriarty in it, who I think is pretty funny, but the movie is so disjointed and, I don't think he's trying to make like a legitimate sequel in any way. Yeah. All right. I'll maybe I'll avoid that one then. Well, you know, it's I guess a curiosity. Sure. Yeah. A curio. Watch it. I'll, I'll watch it illegally or something. You know, not spend the money on it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. So moving from horror, uh, as someone that does various forms of art, what is like your earliest memory of any of them? Uh, of making art yes i'm sorry um i remember in first grade we had this uh cop come to our class to talk about safety you know just like walking to school and walking home from school and you know about how to not get abducted basically and i think that was a thing and and there that would have been 1981 or so oh yeah stranger danger was definitely a thing yeah, it was a thing because all the all the kids that I went to school with had divorced parents and they were always gone. You know, like they <clears throat> they um, were latchkey kids, and so they they were often on their own. And I would envy these kids, of course, but because my parents like ruled over me with an iron fist. Yeah. But um, we we had this cop come, and he passed out these mimeographs of what had you know I think it was like a like a coloring book image of a cop helping some kids or a puppy or something, but the face was left blank. And um, we were each handed these during like free time to just color in. And I remember very meticulously drawing the face of the police officer in. And I didn't draw him with a smile. I think I drew him with like kind of a menacing face. Yeah. And um, this kid sitting next to me was like, whoa, you can draw really good. And I, I think that like planted a seed in my mind for the first time that, oh, really? I can draw? Because I think soon after that, by like eight, I was taking after school classes and learning how to shade from like, you know, age eight, something like that. I remember having to 
painstakingly try to refine my technique and it was you know it was it was agonizing but i i remember fe- Are you there there we go i lost you for a oh. moment you said i remember and then like i you dropped oh sorry uh i forget where i was but um we had these after school classes in this park which i later went to my first show at and saw seven seconds play mm-hmm. um where yeah we had this like teacher and they were they were all ages people like i think they were like adults in the class but i remember sitting and trying to draw the still life of a bird and uh that's one of my earliest memories of like really trying to hone my craft at drawing right on Um, but i would draw these elaborate battle scenes like of uh underwater sea battles and like war scenes i was really into like world war ii and because my grandfather uh he fought in World War II. Both of mine did, actually. But my beloved grandfather, who I was really close to, he um, he like landed at uh, Normandy, and he he wasn't there on D Day, but he was like there two two weeks later or something. Um, yeah. And so he served, I think, like a year over there. So I was always, you know, fascinated by his stories of war. So like war, violence, death, carnage. <laughs> all these things were were seeded into me very early on just you know like even with saturday morning cartoons and stuff it all just kind of fed in you know uh and i remember seeing um i think it was friday the 13th part three because there's a scene where they're like skinny dipping and you know my mom walked in and was like it's either part two or part three i can't i think it's part three um where they're like, oh, you can't watch that. You got to turn that off. So, right. you know, obviously, I had, you know, I had to see see those movies. Then, <laughs> um, yeah, I I don't know if I remember the skinny dipping, but that could have fit in like five of them, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, when uh, when did you start making music? Was it you know like middle school, high school, like most other people? Anything earlier? I I remember talking with my friends, my skater friends, like, oh, we should start a band that sounds like the first FYP 7-inch, you know, just like really sloppy, fast, hardcore. Yeah. But none of us had instruments or the know-how or where even to get them in our town. It was just, it was just like this sort of gray ambiguity of like, I don't know how anyone does that. Like, it was just, it was just totally impossible. But um, I think by the time I was 18, I I was in my first band that I sang for and playing shows. And it was just like this weird band where I didn't really like the direction, but it was lorded over by this towny guy that was older than us. And he was like, I'm going to write all the songs. And he was really into Rancid. And I, I guess I was kind of into the first Rancid album because of skateboarding and its affiliations to Epitaph Records at the time with like, Plan B songs being, or Plan B videos having songs by like F, uh, Pennywise. Mm-hmm. So there was some loose connection there. So I was sort of trying to get into it. I don't know. I was kind of feeling my way for a while. But by the time I was um, a, a freshman in college, I um, played there with that band, which was called The Rejected, in my college town. And I got to know this kid, John Aarons, who later became the bassist of Charles Bronson. So we agreed that summer before going back to college in the fall of September 94 that we would try to start a new band. And so I had it all mapped out what I wanted to do. 
and fortunately they kind of entertained me and we we did something close to what i was hoping it would be yeah okay now is there anything surviving of that era of your art do you have anything from that time oh yeah i was uh trying to draw women um i had this really great art teacher in high school this big brutal looking football coach guy who was just so happened to be this incredible artist and um his name was bill and i remember him sitting me down and saying look look you could be a millionaire <laughs> you just gotta stick to it and uh that, that really stayed with me you know and um at that point i was really trying to to draw anatomy and to draw faces and to just develop skills um just by like looking at something and replicating it on paper. It was just trying to like train my hand to move with my eye, just stuff like, you know, very basics, very basic stuff that you would, you know, get out of a high school teacher, which I brought into, you know, by the time I was, because uh, I started as an art major. So by the time I was 18, 19, I was trying to do these elaborate figurative drawings which it's interesting because I don't do any figurative stuff anymore, but that's what I was into at that era. And it was very like surreal, um, somewhat horror influenced stuff, kind of gruesome looking and yeah, very inspired by like sixties models, like Twiggy. I, don't, I had all these weird influences at that time. So that's kind of what came out of it. Yeah. Do you think that that would have been like the first time that they really matched up like horror in your art? was with the the visual art and like the 60s model stuff i don't know if i looked at it as uh specifically horror influence but okay. i was definitely watching a lot of um horror films at the time where i, I developed this obsession with the film rosemary's baby mm -hmm. and i watched that i must have seen it like i don't know 700 times like i know to this day i can't watch it anymore but i know every line of dialogue in it and i know like scene by scene and I would like dissect the scenes and try and interpret the themes and draw all these little uh, implications because there's a lot of subtleties in the film. And uh, that just became my, you know, sort of jumping off point for other horror. And from there I got into like the hammer stuff, which I'd seen when I was young, but really developed like a, a taste for like the Terrence Fisher stuff with, uh, you know, Peter Cushing and yeah. Christopher Lee. So yeah, I remember going to Tower Records in in Manhattan, and um, yeah, it's, um, I would just rent those and just watch them. And around that time, I got into Mario Bava, and that that really kind of uh, drove me in the direction of Italian horror, which today is my favorite stuff. Yeah, sure, I understand. Yeah. Um, especially like for me, it's like the not even like the lesser, but like the people that seem to like not get as much praise as Argento. Like, I'm a big fan of Fulci. I think Fulci is, like, this weird madman that made these fascinating movies, and everyone, like, they they would watch him, and they were like, oh, this dude's terrible, you know? He hates women, or he hates this, he hates that. And then he would do interviews, and he's like, no, I, I love and worship women. All these movies are me trying to point out how things are from their point of view. Nobody ever gets that. And I was just always so fascinated by that, that he would make these oh. extremely violent movies and people were just like, yeah, he hates women. And he's like, no, nah, you got it all wrong. 
Uh, well, Fulci is my favorite director, and um, I, I I can't tell you how much uh, reverence I hold for the guy. I I I've seen almost all of his films. Maybe not yeah. like the um, like the early westerns. I haven't seen. I've definitely skipped but, over uh, a lot of those. I like I've watched a couple in passing, and I'm like they're cool visually. And I like westerns. I like cowboys, but overall, I'm just like I don't necessarily need to see every western movie. Yeah, I'm more focused on his, you know, name golden period. But I also like the late '80s stuff, and I love late '80s Italian horror probably the most now, which for me initially was really hard to get into. Watching like Paganini horror or Ghost House, they seem so cheap and goofy and awkward. But now I've developed this. Um, appreciation for them for just how corny they are or how clunky they are so it's taken on like a whole other uh, allure in terms of uh, film viewing where the the things that i think would repel a lot of people um draw me in because they're so distinctly italian and they have these characteristics and these um stylistic uh, decisions in them that are you know seemingly artless but uh are very i think deliberate in a sense or they they come across as very specifically of the era and of the director you know damato was another favorite of mine and i think these guys i think they kind of carry the italian horror movement to the end i've never been a huge argento fan i I find him kind of annoying to to watch like his sense of humor drives me crazy yeah and um his, his over stylization i think i i appreciate it but fulci has always been so much more fun for me i uh and, i get a lot of shit for it because i i don't like argento i like yeah. his colors but i don't like him <laughs> like as soon as you said that i was like oh zach's gonna have a field day with this one <laughs> well the color um the gels that he would do i mean that's just lifted from baba I mean, he yeah. used it to like uh, an eccentric level, and I think it works in films like Inferno. Um, and I, I, I like Suspiria, but what an anticlimax! I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, it, his movies are so. Uh, I don't know. They're, I don't even know how to to really put to words. Where they're just so uh, disjointed, I guess. Um, I I like Deep Red a lot, but like try and sit down and explain scene by scene to anybody what is going on and oh, all, yeah. all these twists and turns it takes i mean i appreciate that level of uh, absurdity especially within like the giallo genre how the, it like nothing really adds up and you just rush to the ending but uh for me fulci's even his giallo films are, are far superior uh, I just I find myself going back to them over and over. Lizard in a Woman's Skin, for example, it's just such a weird film. Yeah, my uh, my big one is New York Ripper, and I like you know I try and explain it to people, and I'm like, yeah, it's it's good, I promise. It's like a slasher, but also like the guy does a Donald Duck impression the whole time, and they're like, oh, so it's funny, and I'm like, no, it's kind of depressing, and they're like, okay, I I don't know, I just I think Fulci is so strange but i'm convinced that he was aware of it 95 percent of the time like he knew that he was doing something that would be looked back on later yeah i think to, steven thrower i'm sorry go ahead sorry uh steven thrower made a really um good point about 
of the New York Ripper in that um, there's no central narrative. The film kind of works in this weird multi-direction manner where there's no hero. None of the characters are particularly likable. It doesn't really work out well for anybody. It's a very dismal nihilistic movie. Yeah. And uh, I feel like that really is what, what makes it work so well. Um, on top of the fact you have this Disney, you know, childlike influence of this Donald Duck laugh with like the Mickey Mouse speaking voice. It's so right. crazy. And it's such a, a genius decision to pair it with these extremely violent images. It, it's so memorable. I mean, I think that was like his, you know, his climax. That was his peak in terms of filmmaking. But I actually like Manhattan Baby quite a lot too, which is not everyone's favorite. I, uh, I, my big thing is always like the the Gates of Hell trilogy. I'm just like, yeah, it exists. It's you know, they're they're good movies, but it's like not being able to see past it. I'm just like, yes, I've seen Zombie. I I get it. It's a fine movie. There's there's something else going on, you know. Well, what do you think about Zombie Three? I uh, I have not seen it. I I've only oh my seen, god I've only seen that first one. I I just I I was like there's like five of them and I was like are any of the other ones even worth it? Yes, they all are. <laughs> I'll take that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I I heavily endorse part three. It is okay. so insanely violent, and uh, he's drawing influences from other things. I mean, in terms of like style, it's totally lacking because uh, you know he had fallen out with his crew at that point. Uh, was it Dardano, Sachetti, and um, the uh, the cinematographer who, whose name I'm forgetting? Um, he, but they worked together on like everything from the horror era. Yes, the, yes. Up, up until that point, yeah. Uh, yeah, God, what is his name? Um, I just watched Fulci for Fake a couple months ago, and he was like a thin, short, bald man, but I just can't picture his name. Uh, it'll come to me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I really should know this. Oh, Selvati. That's his name. Sergio Selvati. Anyway, he these guys, you know, together they're like this dream team, because you have this really creative writer in Sachetti, and then Salvati is like totally undercredited as this like master cinematographer, and then you have Fulci with his, you know, just like reckless style of cinema, where like he doesn't care about continuity, and it just works in this way that's. In a way, it's like how Infest wrote songs, you know? They have yeah. these parts that don't really belong together, and they're so abrupt, but they force them to work. And it's so jarring that it creates this new sort of tension uh, that it, it, it's exciting, you know what I mean? It's like they're breaking the rules right in front of you. That's kind of how I see it. Yeah, no, it's, I mean... Honestly, I'm I'm excited. Like you know, we everyone we've talked to so far, it's been fun, and they've talked about like passive things. You know, like oh yeah, I really like this. But to have someone be like, yes, I will gladly talk about this one specific director. I think yeah, I'm I'm down. Um, what about some of the other ones? You know, like did you like Demons or uh, Demons Two? Or I guess you did say Demoni. You said the real title. 
Uh, the the Argento films, Demons and Demons Two. Well, he produced them. I think it was uh, I think it was the Bava Junior, whoever the second Bava was. Was that Lombardo? Oh yeah, yeah, um, Lamberto. Okay, but though, like they, I think they were good representations of like mid to late eighties italian cinema you know like they had a bigger budget and they were still kind of crazy and goofy but they wasted wasted quote-unquote all of the budget on special effects like nothing else changed and i was like yeah this is fine like this is how it should be yeah i really like lamberto baba um he's another guy that i feel like is underappreciated because he did so many different types of movies but the the clunkier ones like the ogre and graveyard disturbance they're they're really awkward. They're almost like Scooby Doo episodes made into horror films. <laughs> yeah, where like you know they're they've got this TV quality and the characters are just total idiots. And there's there's very few redeeming qualities about them, but just the way they look and um, the the seriousness with which they take themselves. I don't know. There's just something charming about them. I just find myself watching those over and over. To, to go back to Argento, I think that those are like the better examples of doing it well, where Argento, it's it's similar things like to what you just said, but it's a lot of, I think he takes it so seriously that you kind of like lose the fun of it with a lot of his filmography, especially like up to like the mid 80s, you know, like opera looks really cool. But the actual plot, I'm just like, dude, what the fuck? Like, this isn't even funny. This has just gone on for too long. I like that one. You know, I can watch that one. Sure. When he gets into the 90s and starts using CGI and yeah. abandons his early stylistic traits, he just loses me. And I just can't even watch them. Um, yeah. Oh, couldn't even. Yeah, I can't even remember the last time I, I sat through one of his films. But, like, I can't stand his daughter. She drives me crazy. <laughs> I don't get it either. My dad is a huge fan, and I'm like, dude, she's not that cool. I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm not a fan. Um, yeah, I don't know. But it's hard to knock Argento because he, he really, I mean, he did so much. And though you could argue that he lost his, his genius, I mean whatever i mean he he did so much i i will admit you know he did he produced demons one and two and i love both of those like we were just talking about and dawn of the dead is like one of my top five movies and i mean he did a lot for dawn of the dead so i'm willing yeah to, i like, like his know. cut the most for sure um yeah way more than the um the american cut i, uh, I always it's darker watch, it's it's yeah romero just seemed to have uh, go on and on, you know, he used all that like circus music, that like library soundtrack stuff with yeah. like, uh, the carnival stuff. It's, it's just, I don't know the he, the tonal shifts in that. And it's so long, but I, again, I still like it. I still appreciate it, but the Argento one, I think is, is, uh, my fave. I, I, I understand. And I mean, it really like the music specifically, I think it changes a lot being able to see like zombie in full form as opposed to the, like the archival music, kind of like what you were saying. 
and I like I always yeah. want to watch the super extended cut, and every time I watch it, I'm just like, oh yeah, this kind of sucks. Like, <laughs> oh, it's so boring. Yeah, it feels like it's four hours long. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, um, I don't even know why, you know what I mean? You just yeah. kind of are you sitting there and I'm like, it's like every scene goes on like 10 seconds too long or something. <laughs> Especially like the, the cigarette scene, like you watch that guy ask every single member of the crew if they have cigarettes. And I'm like, why the fuck <laughs> did you not? I don't actually this? remember that, but that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know what, whatever. That's a separate, <laughs> separate thing. Uh, as far as more like modern horror, is there anything that's really drawn you in in like the last ten years? No, I actually no. have a rule: I won't watch anything after nineteen ninety nine. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. You were just the, like uh, you saw Scream three, and you're just like, I'm done, man. I'm throwing it in. Well, this is a recent, you know, decision where I drew the line in the sand. Where I'm just like, I'm done. I'm not watching any more of these with the sub bass and the jump scares and like the, the advanced audio and the, you know, just like the, the post production like, um, with the filters of the colors and all that. I just I hate it. I can't stand it. Movie making for me has become this thing where, it's just a thing of the past and watching it brings me back to something comforting and gives me inspiration it's like reading an old book or something yeah no i understand i you know i'm dawn of the dead i've seen it more times than i need to but it's always it's like a it's like a nice feeling going back to it it's you always know it's going to be good and there you're definitely taking a gamble watching something new but watching something new in both years and to you you know what if it sucks and it's just kind of the the nail in the coffin for you yeah and the thing that's um so different now is that everything is just completely owned by these like industry standards we would never get a fulci equivalent today you know just like you wouldn't get a john carpenter equivalent in the 70s you know what i'm saying by the time he hits the 80s, he's he's already like, you know, a big industry guy. And though I still like a lot of his movies into the 90s, they just kind of get absorbed into the cinema establishment. And something gets lost, you know, like the daringness, the innovation. I don't know, they settle. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. not to knock Carpenter, I, I think he's brilliant. But, you know, it just seems to be kind of the norm now where you have certain things. I mean, like, Annabelle, like that whole that whole stupid series, yeah, and um, Insidious, like they're so interchangeable. I mean, they're so generic, and they all do the kind of the same thing, you know? Right. Yeah, and I mean, you could definitely like draw or not draw, but like write out a list of just like you know, jump scare here, jump scare there. Very easily remember, like memorable, but also too vague of a title. Uh, take a song that someone would have liked and make it spooky. Terry yeah, yeah, terrible, yeah. But I'm like, I don't need this girl singing like a creepy version of Pet Cemetery. Just let me fucking hear the Ramones. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I... and that's another thing too. You know, you get into this like philosophical realm where like trying to recapture something, right? But like yeah. the methods they're using to recapture it are are like so detached from like why the thing existed in the first place. Yeah, and I mean, like, just to, to go back to um, Argento, the remake of Suspiria, 
I'm like, it's a full hour longer, and it's somehow more boring and explains less. And I was just like, okay. It's such it's <laughs> such a fucking disaster. I absolutely hated it. And that was actually one of the um, motivators for me to just say, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. I'm never going to sit through something like this ever again. Where you get to the end, and it's supposed to be this big payoff, and it's like this supposedly brutal killing fest, and it's Good. so poorly executed, and it's such a weak payoff. And by this point, you know, horror has become this thing for like normies. Everyone's into horror. Yeah. Everyone just like exudes horror. They they're wearing horror clothes. They're talking about horror. They they love the merch. It's just this lifestyle, and. Uh, I don't know. There's something just like gross about it. I just want to stay far away from it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, there's, I mean, there's definitely like some things that I've enjoyed from the last several years, but I overall, I do understand what you're saying. Like it's, it was strange to me a couple years ago. Uh, Walmart was selling like horror movie t-shirts and I was like, yeah, dude, I can buy a night of the living dead shirt for $5. Like, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and what does that tell you? Yeah, you know, I, I it's kind of it, yeah. like <laughs> Nike made those satanic shoes. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm sorry, but like Satan isn't edgy anymore. You know, yeah. Satan is um has been entirely co opted and embraced, and for you to counter signal Satan would make you an extremist. You know right. what I'm saying? Like that's where we've got. So that's my issue with it, where. Modern society has completely flipped over and inverted itself, and its entire value structure has collapsed. And I have often had this kind of conversation with friends in talking about like old metal. Well, I yeah. like the metal when Christianity still had a hold over the culture. And you could say that about horror, where they were kind of battling it out. Christianity was slowly losing the battle, but they still had some pull. And it could get films like banned or censored, and it would create this sense of antagonism, where like the you know filmmakers would bounce back, or bands would come out with something more extreme, and then, you know, there was something propelling this need to uh, innovate. And I just don't see that anymore. There's just sure, no need yeah. to innovate when everyone already thinks of themselves as evil. It's quite cool. embarrassing. <laughs> So, so moving, moving from that into, uh, like how you, how you run your label or how it's represented, like, how do you, uh, how do you find the bands that you want to, to have on the label, you know, because I mean, a lot of the imagery it's, it is still dark imagery, but it's definitely not the same as, and I mean, I like twin temple, but twin temple is like, you know, here's satanic doo-wop hail Satan. Here's a song that sounds like it's from the fifties, but then oh, you know, I don't know what that is, but it sounds bad. I'm sure you'll love uh, it. Don't worry. I'll I'll text it to you after this. <laughs> we'll have a blast. Uh, <laughs> but uh, like how like bands like Cadaver Dog or uh, what Veil Two just released something. So like those, yeah. you know, the imagery, it's the 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 creepy Care Bear thing. It was fantastic. You know, like how do you guys come up with something like that? but also find a way to keep it distant something that you're like, yeah, this is really fucking goofy and I hate it. Oh, like how do we arrive at our ideas or sound or whatever? Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think a lot of it is instinctual, you know, and it's playing off what we're already into and what we've done. So there is this element of it being a linear progression, but that said, things seem to come out of uh, thin air. I don't know. It's kind of like the culmination of influences at any given time uh, results in the outcome. So I think that um, the idea for Veil 2's cover art, which I realize is highly unusual for Youth Attack, came out of me taking an interest in this old horror comic artist named L.D. Cole, who did some really amazing work. And he just used, you know, like the basic primary colors of the old, like, EC comics. And I thought, well, it'd be cool to see how that would translate to uh, what Veil 2 had done uh, on the recording. Because it, it really is an odd pairing. It doesn't really look how it sounds or vice versa. Right. But I just thought that was, it was, uh, it would just be an interesting experiment to see how that would, would pan out. And we just happened to know this guy, um, Putrid, who is this incredible artist in Chicago. And he designed the logo for City Hunter. So we had him as a contact and asked if he was interested in it. And it turned out he was a huge LB Cole fan. Yeah. So it was uh, serendipitous in that way. And it just seemed to work. So we gave him a couple you know, ideas of what we were looking for and he ran with it and we were just into it. I mean, we kind of let him do his thing. And I always think that's the best policy instead of breathing down his neck and, uh, you know, forcing his hand or something. Yeah. And, yeah uh, you know, I don't know. I, People that are into it, I don't know how into it they are because I think we've gotten to this point where people just kind of like what they like and expect the same thing. And if it, if it isn't run through a photocopier and uh, dirtied up and you know what I mean? Yeah. I, well, people, I, mean, I, I think they, they look for that stuff. I think like interesting about the, the visual art that you do and the visual art that you have like represented through Youth Attack because like – you have this style and then every couple pieces i'm like oh this is already something drastically different and so it's like there's never any room to get comfortable and i'm not trying to say that to like jerk you off or something but i think it's a good representation of like moving forward while still keeping an audience entertained you know that's exactly it because you know our interests are deeply rooted and very specific things. And it's like, that probably isn't going to change very much, Mm -hmm. but it's like, well, where can you take those ideas? Like those, those sound or visual influences, what can you do with them um, beyond just copying them? You know what I mean? Like it would be, it would be so boring to just try and recreate that. And that really is my issue with everything modern happening now. Like you had this wave of death metal. I think that's kind of playing itself out now, but everyone was trying to do this early nineties stuff. And uh, obviously not a single one of them is going to be as memorable as the classics they were worshiping. And it just becomes this, you know, continual digression. And you you see that now with black metal where like the same cover seems to be uh, emerging again and again. And I, a lot of people like this. It really bores me where they have like the ornate border with a a high contrast guy holding a candelabra and he's got the spike gauntlets and his corpse painted out, you know, I appreciate it, but when you see it a hundred times, yeah. how can people be interested in this? So yeah. I just have this restlessness, <laughs> you know. I get restless. Well, and I mean, you know, like I—that's I, the thing that 
I I was pretty late to metal aside from like all the obvious things. Like I always liked Black Sabbath, but then everything else like it kind of it came later. But it was like looking at things, I was like, all this kind of looks like Dark Throne, and I was like, it all kind of just sounds like some version of Dark Throne, I guess. And even like later Dark Throne, I was just like, yeah, this just sucks. Like it sounds like an earlier or like a much later version or an attempt. And why is it still this instead of that? Blah. And I don't know. I think that's what helps labels like Youth Attack stand out is the... Oh, thanks. Yeah. I, I think it's like the music is always lyrically pretty <laughs> pretty bleak in my opinion, which is fine, you know. But it's like things always look original enough, but they're still memorable. And I always think well, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, I I really appreciate art in the sense of um, its representation of beauty, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I'm necessarily aspiring toward beauty. So I guess it's debatable if what I'm doing is art. I think of it more as a direct representation of reality, the the reality that we're living in, and I think that may be uh, more representative in horror. You know where horror like you know if you look at night of the living dead or something or right. any one of these movies that coincided during civil rights or vietnam you know these anxieties that the public was having would kind of play out on screen right mm-hmm. and you can always draw these cultural connections and uh, I, I can see that happening now just with how uh, the visuals have changed with what i've done over the years and the um, the lyrical content you know, it seems to just be shifting and different directions ebbing and flowing, either becoming like super nihilistic or uh, just sort of um, inflexible and defiant and uh, yeah. determined, this sort of stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's various appeals to hardcore and I've become super particular in what I'm looking for at this point. Um, you know, there's... Only a few bands from the 80s that I still listen to or think about in any way that I, I think of as relevant still. But um, you know, one of them is uh, the Misfits, actually, because sure. uh, they, they have this timelessness about them. You know, they, they kind of existed outside of everything else. And you know, they were utilizing the pop culture to, uh, you know, make these songs, whereas most other bands were, you know, railing against it you know if you think about black flag in comparison they're just totally detached from reality they're just these guys singing about anarchy and destruction and living in an abandoned church whereas yeah. you have glenn danzig living in a suburban home with his parents and they're like watching old movies at night and stuff that's i think more of the thing i can relate with at this point yeah that's i mean like i i love black flag up until like a reasonable point you know loose nut i'm like yeah it's fine and everything after i'm like i don't fucking want to think about it but it was always that was always kind of like the the hard part and i'm definitely not trying to like say this is like some sell for for my band to you as a label person but it was like danzig made more sense to me than most other people because i was like i'm not gonna write like a cool song about killing cops like cop killer was written like that was straight to the point like i'm not gonna out yeah. And then it was like songs about like movies and shit like that. I was like, yeah, that's fine. You know, it's it's easier. 
uh, people relate to it just the same. And like, I'm a goofy white kid that had a pretty easy life growing up, but I love horror movies. So I'd rather write about horror movies than anything else. Yeah. I mean, I understand. And Danzig's interesting because he was very conceptual. He wasn't just singing about Night of the Living Dead. He was just taking the title and going somewhere else with it, which is, you know, I guess you could argue a postmodern idea where you're uh, interposing your narrative into something that already exists and kind of claiming it as yours. But he did so in this reverent way where he's respecting the past, he's respecting the form, and kind of almost as if like a, a fan worship creating a fan fiction based on these things that like, oh, we can, you know, we can identify with the titles, but like he goes somewhere else with the lyrics and the lyrics are crazy. You know, there's, they're far more violent or sadistic than anything you would have seen on screen. I mean, American Nightmare is a very brutal song. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The, the, like the music of it, it's so wild because it's like, I, I mean, like, sure, like, Psycho Billy or whatever the fuck it's called. Like, that stuff came later, but it's just, like, you you hear it, and it's just, like, this man's killing his girlfriend. He's driving down the highway afterwards, all this other shit, and it's, like, that's all coming while you just hear this, like, very nice rockabilly background. Yeah, you know, if you played it for your mom or something, she'd be like, oh, it's like Elvis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Funnily so, yeah, enough, my mom got me into the Misfits. <laughs> Wow. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Where do you uh where do you stop on Danzig? Do you have uh or are you still a fan? You're like, "Oh yeah, dude, Veronica's where it's at." Uh probably the second album of his solo. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. I yeah. think Danzig 3 is very good, but I I mean, Lucifuge rules hard. I get it. I never heard those actually. There's a lot of bands I just never listened to. Like I never heard the Melvins before. I don't know what they yeah. sound like. I I've heard a couple Melvin songs. I don't know if anything ever stood out to me. They exist. Uh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I I am a big Danzig fan, but I think that there's definitely some ups and downs to it. Um, I I'll gladly see that reunion at least once. I don't care. I don't fucking care. Like it's either gonna be well, he great did that. Or it's gonna be a shit show. Oh yeah, well he did that Elvis covers album, which is fantastic. I I haven't heard it. I was afraid it was going to be bad, so I'm no, glad that great. I'm glad that someone can tell me like yes, it is worth it. <laughs> he's cool, man. Yeah, he's maybe one of the only actually like cool guys from that era. Maybe yeah. uh, John Brandon. So like him and him and Glenn, I think are like the two guys I would really like to hang out with. I feel like they could just talk and talk and I just sit and listen. You know, it'd be so yeah. cool just to hear their ideas on things. Boy, do I know that feeling right now here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been great. Cause I've had like zero opinion of anything you guys are talking about. And I love to hear your thoughts oh, on it. Cause I know it's fine. Like I just, I'm not studious of Italian horror and this kind of like the wave of punk you're talking about missed me growing up. So like, I love to hear about it. Oh, People wow. who know what they're talking about. Well, you know, I'd be happy to point you in the right direction. I, if <laughs> if uh, if I were to tell you where to start, you should just watch Black Sunday, because that that to me is the best Italian film. It's oh, just sure. a milestone of creativity and execution. It's it's a masterwork. 
And although the story is actually flawed and has, you know, several plot holes or whatever, it doesn't matter. And I feel like that really set the the wheel in motion for Italian cinema, not really needing to make sense so long as the visuals were awesome and the atmosphere was right. And certainly Fulci paid a lot of attention to Baba. And I don't know if they actually knew each other. I kind of, I don't know. But, uh, you know, that's what he came out of, you know. That's, uh, it's, they're not separated by very far, actually. Like, you know, Black Sunday was from 1960. But if you fast forward to The Beyond or House by the Cemetery, I see comparisons there. And I don't know how intentional they are or not. It could just be because they're Italian and it's like in the Italian uh, zeitgeist or something. But to me, they, they, uh, there's a line that connects them. Right on. <clears throat> but I'm very interested in uh, timelines, you know, and, and how movements develop. Like I just spent like a month listening to and reading about and uh, learning about the runaways whom I never liked, but like, I just thought they're whatever. I bought like runaways records for my girlfriend in the nineties, you know, this my, my ex-girlfriend. And, uh, you know, I thought they were okay. I was like cherry bomb, but right. to really think about them in context to everything else, to what was happening musically in the country and in the UK, for example, uh, I'd like to think about this as like how you, you could draw, um, a connection between the runaways into like the death rock scene. You know, and they're only separated by just a few years, and yet they're worlds apart. But like you, you know, you come to realize that the people that were in these death rock bands, who are like, you know, dressing all goth and doing drugs, and you know, they're just like, you know, totally dark people, probably saw the Runaways when they were like fourteen or something. You know what I mean? The that's very interesting. To me. I my thing is always like uh, the people that find some inspiration visually or otherwise from like Iggy Pop and the Stooges or even like Iggy's like first couple solo albums. I mean, like I like the Stooges a lot, and I'm a big David Bowie fan, so I want to like some of that early Iggy solo stuff. But it's like the people that are just like, yeah, I saw it. It was kind of a shit show. I went and started this band that was you know inspired by that. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. You know, like not even taking inspiration from like the music or the lyrics, just he went up there and he had fun. And that was enough for me to want to start my own band. Yeah. Well, Bowie was a huge influence on me just in his uh, desire to annihilate the very thing that made him popular and just completely wipe the board clean, get rid of the backing band, you know, just can the spiders from Mars and we'll get this whole new lineup and we'll do this totally different thing. And we'll, we'll do the same thing for every record. And it'll be totally different each time. Yeah. That level of daringness, I don't think had ever really been done. I don't think anyone like thought about stuff in those terms. You were just a band like ACDC, you know, you just kept the same lineup until the singer died and you get a new guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I want to say it was last year, but it could have been like trailing into this year, but I went through the entire Bowie discography. Like I would sit down with one or two albums a day and it was very interesting, but there was definitely like, there was a couple years where I was like, man, this is really, it's dragging, you know, but it's like, there would be one or two songs on each album that I was like, yeah, this still fucking rules. 
and it wasn't always a single or it wasn't always an album that was like a financial success but you could still hear like aspects of something that you liked or that I that I liked um trailing from whatever he had done two or three years prior that was a big hit with me or anything else yeah uh, like never let me down is probably the most forgettable album for me but it was good yeah i've never heard it yeah <laughs> it was like 88 i think it was uh it was oh, much yeah. much later well you know i've seen labyrinth so many times and like his movie or, sorry his the songs that he wrote for the movie yeah are like so theatrical you know you'd see those on like a stage or something you know right. like a like during a play or a performance not really like a concert and uh i i guess that's what happens when you just kind of like cover or you like run the gambit right like you cover all the ground you know you do everything and you end up there i don't yeah. know it's weird he didn't stay there thankfully uh he he changed but you know i i love labyrinth but you know those songs are very different from just a few years earlier you know oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah. i i think that like i'm i'm a big prince fan and i'm a pretty big bowie fan but i think that both of them always did a pretty good job of changing things up enough that it stayed interesting and kind of like what i was saying a minute ago like even if it sucks you know i'm still interested enough to listen to it and see you know if there's going to be something on there that i'm going to enjoy and like well, it's funny we bring them up because oh yeah i don't even know that stuff but I, it's funny that we bring them up because i feel like there is a similarity between them and glenn danzig who is just hyper obsessive about going back in and changing things tinkering this taking this guitar lead out redoing this guitar track changing yeah. the you know tinkering constantly and you know he would pull titles last minute they just pulled that book that was supposed to come out on bazillion points they even announced it you know like the cover was out there i don't think glenn had anything to do with it and that's why they pulled it but nonetheless yeah. you know he he's got his hands and everything still to this day you know he's tinkering constantly remember when that box at that coffin box that came out with the cds yeah. in it yeah, it was yeah, such yeah. a big deal and it's put together so weirdly you know and there's like very little information, you know, I guess it's I, just sort of of the era, but the, I forget what the guy's name is that wrote all that. Uh, his name on Instagram is like Manila creative, like M A N I L A. But, uh, he, oh, okay. he was like, you know, Oh, I'm, I'm good to, I'm good to write this. I'm good to show up. And he was talking about it and he was just like, it was super weird. Uh, like, everyone hated each other and people would kind of come and go while I was working on it and putting things together. And sometimes people were nice to me. Sometimes they were assholes and I don't know, but I, I helped release it. So that's cool. And I was like, yeah, that seems like on par with what I would expect. You know, like Danzig had left in 83 Christ, the conqueror was something he moved into Sam Hain, you know, he was doing his other things. And then like to have all these people just like, ask for this ask for this over and over again and so then he has to go through and re-release all the shit but then like what you were saying mix with it and do this and do that you know like the even like down to very specific songs uh we are 138 like the mixo lido mix from 1980 it's a completely different song and it's fucking amazing it's slower and i don't weirder. know if i've heard that it's it's pretty cool wow. um I don't know. I I'm definitely like a big nerd for Danzig, but I like we were talking about a minute ago. I have a I have a cutoff point where I kind of 
stop accepting the nerdiness. I'm I, like I said, <laughs> I have not heard that that Elvis album. But I am wearing yeah, a Danzig shirt to today, so I mean, whatever. Like, <laughs> <fuck me>. <laughs> <laughs> right. What uh? As far as as far as like the label and things being in small numbers with uh, with releases like shirts or merchandise or anything like that, was that always like a plan for you, or was it just you were doing smaller things because you guys were a smaller label and you didn't want to spend all your money? You know, like how did that come to happen? Uh, well, to this day, I just make as much that I think um, the release requires. You know, okay. I, I don't. I don't overpress stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I try to just meet the demand and leave it at that. Um, because it just seems that most titles don't have uh, this longevity like they used to. Whereas uh, if we do 600 Cadaver Dog LPs in, what is it, 2018 or 19? Yeah. I think it was um, 2018. 20, I forget. But yeah, just um, if you go back 20 years or something, we would have sold 6,000, you know, it yeah. would have been way more. And so we've just entered this new phase where people are buying music, not necessarily for the music, but for the object. And that's a pretty small crowd, but thankfully they exist because they're kind of keeping this stuff alive. Yeah. But I would think that even if it, had no audience, we would continue. We would continue to make this stuff just because it's just in us and we have to get it out. I don't know. Work has to be made. And I think, you know, in, in terms of uh, the greater spectrum, if, if if we weren't doing it, no one would. I mean, I, I really think of Youth Attack and the band's eye as very separate from everything else, from everything else happening. The other thing, um, and I'm, I apologize if this is like a dumb question. Do you hand do everything, or is it? Oh, uh, like... the test press stuff. Okay. Yeah, I, I make those all by hand. Yeah. All right. Because it's like you know, like I'll watch the videos on Instagram, and it's like you know, you're cutting everything very meticulously and whatnot, and I'm like, is this dude just like, yeah, I got to make 600 sleeves for Goodbye World? Like, don't talk to me for three days. Oh no, no. Okay. Not those. All right. uh, those those <laughs> was... are done. Um, yeah, like the standard editions are done at a plant, but the I, I had limited assumed as test much, pressing. But I was like, I, I was like, I'm just gonna ask. I I don't even care. But I have done that in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm often tempted to do that, but it's more a matter of time. I worked on this update for over a year. I think two years. It's funny that you put all this time into it and it's all gone. And, a day yeah. like the goodbye world record sold out the same day it came out. I didn't expect that. I never, I don't have expectations. That's the thing. Aside from thinking like, okay, 500 records feels safe. Right. I think like maybe they'll do okay. Hopefully, you know, right. I'll put it out yeah, there yeah. and see how it does. But, um, beyond that, who knows? Because things in the past that I've had a lot of excitement for, I think people just don't care about. Or it just has to land at a certain time. I don't know. It's hard to put your thumb on like the swirl of circumstances that generate excitement. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's just what's going on in the country or what people are releasing or what people are looking at on Instagram. I don't know. 
Maybe it's all of these things. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because we're just going to keep making it until we can. <laughs> um, and then moving from that into like the, the quote-unquote weird merchandise, is that something that you've done since the beginning, like with Charles Bronson or even like pre-Youth Attack anything? Like how, you know, City Hunter had a knife. Uh, didn't Squirm have like a trash bag for a t-shirt? Like things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I just like to keep it fun. I mean, all the stuff is yeah. fun to do and just dreaming. Of, I mean, we made um, scene drama popcorn. So it was like these bags yeah. of popcorn with like Youth Attack branding. Yeah, just whatever it comes to me, you know, if I'll just be sitting around thinking about the label or what would be funny. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, no, things funny. come to me or they don't. Yeah, we made uh, a nightmare-inducing pillow one time. It was like a, a pillow that actually played music. Uh, we made jerk booth razor blades, jerk booth um, vomit bags. Record handling gloves. I remember the gloves. Yeah. Now, how did popcorn. you like? How did you get those pillows to work? What was the mechanism inside of them? Oh well, those were made uh, by a company that you had to order from China, and they're really expensive. And it came with like this little junky MP3 player. And you could just, you know, drag your files onto it, and it had like a play button on it, and it had a, a little cord that plugged into a little uh, outlet that ran out of the pillow, and in the pillow there was a little um, speaker built into the cushion. So it was just, uh, you know, it played. I think it was like a mono sound <laughs> of a pillow. I still have the pillow, actually. It worked fine. Now, and we just like, made pillowcases. How loud was it? Like, could you fall asleep on it if you were trying? Or just was it, there was no way? Yeah, you could adjust the volume on the MP3 player. So it, it was legitimate. I mean, it just had the Ancestors 3 album on it. And <laughs> that was like one of like dreams or one of the themes of the band. And, um, you know, you could, you could definitely listen to it at night. <laughs> just play on repeat you know it would, it would start over i love that i, love I never that. i never did it <laughs> thanks um as far as uh things that are things that are in the works things that are coming like i always see people ask about like a charles bronson collection or box set is there are there things that you're working on that you're wanting or willing to talk about like you know oh it is coming i am it's in the process i'm excited well i wanted to do a bronson box set for a long time but the um the legal factors surrounding it are very different from what they were in the 90s mm -hmm. now everything is immediately traceable and it, of course we never thought about this stuff back in dekalb like, oh, how are we going to deal with this in the future with all the copyright? You know, the all the sound bites, for example, would need to be cleared, and yeah. the uh, the name and the likeness. There's just a lot of factors there. I don't know how to best go about it, actually. So um, because, go ahead. 
Uh, I'm just wondering if there is a professional way to go about it because Butcher and I both also have sound bites that need clearing, and one day it's gonna bite us both. I uh, I have just yeah. used like uh, DistroKid to upload stuff, and DistroKid just seems to close their eyes and press accept. Uh, I played in like a a horror doom band, and every song had a sample at the beginning of it, and like I didn't have the rights to sample Aliens. And DistroKid was just like, hey, <laughs> that's awesome. Like, we don't care. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, you know, that band Mortician has existed all this time. They seem to get away with it. Yeah. But uh, we just talked to the one thing of the is, dudes from Graf Warlock. And I mean, like, they're a fucking. They're <laughs> literally licensing. sampling Nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it's not a big deal. I don't know. A guy that I know told me well they don't care about that the music they just don't want you to do the merch which is i believe bronson's estate and, you know i shouldn't say too much else about it. i don't really know actually no no that's okay yeah uh, i'm sorry i was just i like i always see people comment on it and it's like once a week either you or the youth attack page is just like yeah yeah we see your comment like yep i got it okay <laughs> Well, it should come out. I mean, there's a, there's more material that has been unearthed since the CD, and there's all these photos now because over the years people have just come forward with all of these these great photos of us. Yeah. Uh, that we didn't even know about at the time. I mean, it's really hard to put into words how little we thought about the long term as a band. You know, uh, the fact that we even got an LP out of that band is kind of incredible because it was just one day we thought, well, we've got these new songs. What if we just write 10 more? Will that be an LP? And it was kind of like, okay. Uh, then at that time, I got accepted to school in New York and it was like, you know, we were erasing the clock. Yeah. So we had all these invites to play shows. And then after that, we recorded. But we technically recorded the album after we were broken up, which is kind of interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, we had already played our last show, and I was still in the studio doing vocals and stuff. Uh, you know, we did like the the prank to Victory Records or Bulldog Records, rather. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we were mixing it. I think like seriously, like the day before, I was uh, scheduled to fly to New York to uh, New York City and start graduate school. So I was, you know, literally down to the wire to try and get the thing mixed. I don't even think we mastered it. I mean, that was just how it was in those days. Oh, sounds good. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was the charm of it. You know, it's not the kind of thing that I think I could replicate again. If we did like a new record, it would be so lame. You know mm. what I mean? Maybe we could pull it off. I don't know. It would be weird. Oh, especially. Now I want to ask, like, uh, you seem to be like doing some rogue artwork for bands here and there, and like uh, specifically, like Hesitation Wounds, you did the photography for Chicanery, and uh, Full of Hell's Trumpeting Ecstasy, you did the artwork for. And how does stuff like that come to be? Do people approach you for these, or does it just happen sort of naturally? Yeah, they just reach out to me. Yeah, and if uh, I like what they're doing and I have the time, uh, I yeah, I try and do it. Yeah. And I, I've, you know, these are great guys. Um, Jeremy Bohm's a great guy. I love the guys in Full of Hell. They, they've been amazing to work with. Um, Regional Justice Center is another one. You know, I'm very fortunate, I think, to, to just do this thing outside of my own label. It's kind of nice. But um, I, 
you know, I don't actually have that much time on my hands because youth attack takes up almost all of it. So a lot of offers I have to unfortunately turn away where I just, you know, I'm overcommitted. Even now, I don't think I have time to do anything else other than what's already planned for the rest of the year. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's That must be a great feeling, though. Well, you know, these are records that I'm, I'll be putting out that we've worked on for years. Uh, one of them, I think, goes back to 2009, if you can believe it. Oh, wow. Uh, it's finally, finally coming out. It's like a 12-year process. It's insane. Um, but, yeah, the, the first inklings of it being a real thing started in 2009. It's crazy. Uh, and that band is called Arcane Sorcerer. So this is another black metal sounding thing uh, that uh, I'm looking forward to. That'll be up next. Right. But it's, it's funny. It still isn't done. <laughs> <laughs> it's been Sometimes more. it just takes 12 years. You yeah, know? 12 years. It's fine. I just think whatever duration it takes, so long as it gets done. Yeah. Uh, that's what I care about. So long as that it isn't abandoned then i'm content you know let's just keep pushing it forward nudging it along and we'll see, we'll see where we can get you know but that's just one of many well, that's just how it is i mean you know you get to a point where you just kind of have to accept the fact that to a greater degree these records have their own life and they take as long as they have to take i don't know yeah this instantly makes me feel better about missing a deadline four years in a row <laughs> Yeah, that's the way it is. I mean, it's hard to um, it's hard to to really um, wrestle around the inevitable. You know, it has to sound a certain way, and that's that's the way it's got to be. I don't know, but there there is something remarkable uh, just in the nature of creating work that the natural tendency is for it to fail or to um, not get finished, and so it takes some sort of superhuman strength sometimes to see it through. You know, it's almost as if the devil's trying to pull it out of your hands and uh, snatch it away from you forever. You know, you, you're just fighting for it the whole time and you just can't give up. Maybe sometimes uh, it, it'd be better to let it go. I don't know, but I, I tend to be the type that I have to see it through no matter how long it takes, you know, it, it, you got to clear the table. Yeah. Um, so so many bands have just given up and never recorded. The Screamers are a great example. At any yeah, point. it took like what forty years for that release to come out that finally did like last month. Oh, did it? I didn't even see yeah. that. But wow. Yeah, yeah, it finally it was finally released. <laughs> How is it? Is it good? I I listened to a couple tracks and I was like, yeah, this sounds fine. Uh, but I didn't I didn't dive through everything. I I was pretty passive with it. I will admit. Well, then, you know, the fact that um, they delivered also, in a way, diminishes the myth. You know what I'm saying? Because now they pulled <laughs> yeah. the trigger and followed through. One of my favorite bands is Necrovore from Texas. And you know, they famously only did this four-song rehearsal tape. They actually recorded the songs as a proper demo. They're not as good. But the rehearsal of these four songs, you guys know this? No. You heard this stuff? Okay. So they were just this band from um, New Braunfels, Texas, which is near Austin. And they're just these maniacs, you know? Uh, they just, uh, they had this possessed energy about them with like, 
the music and the energy and the dynamics and it's just so innovative for the time it's so extreme and they never follow through on the lp and you know it leaves you in this permanent state of want i think the singer is like a weapons contractor now <laughs> for like the u.s government <laughs> but you know back back in those days he's just like this horror obsessed maniac playing these insane riffs I don't know. There's just something mythical about it that you just never get like the full picture because you never see them turn lame. You know, they didn't. They didn't like release the album and it sucked. You know, there it was just always that unfulfilled promise. And there, there's something beautiful about it. That was um, at the beginning of COVID. I started going back through bands I hadn't listened to in a long time, and I went through and I re-listened to Void, the the Discord band. And I was like, oh yeah. oh, yeah, this band, you know, they hold up. They're still good. And then I was reading about it, and it was like the second LP, like they had written all of it and then just kind of like said, fuck it. Like one of the dudes just didn't like it anymore. And so they bailed. And then there's like all these bootleg copies of it. And I listened to a couple songs, and it was terrible. And I'm like, yeah, this is good. Like I'm glad that they never fucking did it because it's not anything that would have been, you know, the Faith Void split or – uh, that collection that Ian had released a couple of years ago, like it would have been something else altogether that was straying entirely from what they made, which that part's fine, but you have like a three year lifespan and then you're going to be like, all right, here's our other album. It's like hair metal. Like that would, it would have ruined everything. Yeah. Potions for bad dreams. It's yeah. a weird record. <laughs> I think they're going for some sort of motorhead type thing or venom. It's unclear. It's unclear. It's, it almost sounds like space rock at times or something. Yeah. And I'm like, um, I, I, I don't know. But it makes more sense if you see them play at the end. There's a show, I think, at the end of 83 or early 84, like right before they disbanded, mm -hmm. where they're still playing the hits like Who Are You and – uh, time to die um, but they mix in a few of the LP songs and they work a little bit better I think one of the, the main factors of why the LP is so bizarre is just the production on it is horrible now, but it's almost like they missed they missed an album in between Black Flag yeah. is, is another example where it's like there should have been like an album between damaged in my war because that leap is so drastic yeah you know and, and instead you get like the album splits as the as the leap side one is like yeah this sounds like black flag and side two you're like this is like an eight minute song what the fuck is this that's a, that's my favorite black flag record i as most people would I, probably agree yeah. i agree yeah three nights is like yeah. one of my favorite songs ever uh i actively like try to bully everyone else in my band to cover it and they're like all of our songs are a minute and a half and i'm like that's why it'd be so cool and they're like no dude we're not wearing an eight minute song and i'm like all right whatever i'm the asshole i'm pretty sure that was really alienating when it came out because people oh, oh, heard sure. it and were like oh what is this is like black sabbath or something you know what is this crap <laughs> yeah i i've seen that they would uh they would do shows that were just like instrumental shows like, they would just write Black Flag, and then uh, in the bars, they would write, like, I-N-S-T. And it was just like, that's it. You know, you're getting an all-instrumental set. Sounds awful. 
You know, it's, yeah. it's like they become the Grateful Dead or something. <laughs> yeah. See, I'm trying to think of something that would be actually good to hear just like that, but all of that sounds awful to me. <laughs> I like some Grateful Dead stuff, you know. It's like the copycats, though. That's what I don't, I don't want to ever hear. Yeah, bands like Fish, I'm like, I don't fully understand it, you know? Like, you you made a legacy off of riding someone else's coattails until you finally figured out your own music, and it still just kind of sounds the same, just, you know, 20 years later. So, I, I don't know. Is that I mean, I get it, right? It's a, it's a lifestyle. You know, yeah. they want that lifestyle, and... There's there's something I think alluring, and just being on a permanent tour, <laughs> even yeah. as as just a fan, you know, just follow the band. But it's a, uh, it's it's a reality that I want nothing to do with. I mean, it's it's a world that I I find kind of gross. Sure. Yeah. You know. The whole like drug aspect of it, or just this hippie lifestyle. I don't know. I like to work. I want to challenge myself. I want to produce stuff. I want to engage and uh, collaborate with cool people and talented people and see where I can take this. I don't. Uh, I don't want to just drop out of society. I think if I was uh, around in the early '70s and late '60s, I would have absolutely despised hippies. And, you know, they were looked at as counterculture, like, oh, well, on the other hand, you would have, like, you know, I don't know, people supporting the, I don't know, like Nixon or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard It's hard to even factor how that world compares to, to now, you know? Someone, uh, someone I'm friends with had just, uh, had just tweeted, and they were like, yeah, I talked to someone that, uh, grew up in the 80s and they they talked about punk and they were like every member of Minor Threat was uh, insufferable uh, Black Flag were not nearly as fun to see live as any photo leads on and Keith Morris was a huge asshole and I was like all these things sound par for the course like that's fine and then they were like when we asked them how they got into the scene they were just like well that's just what you did if you weren't punk you were a cop and I was like that kind of makes me hate everything. <laughs> like, there, there was so much music being made, you know, in, like, 1985. But if you weren't punk, you were, like, just the opposite of it. Like, you were a fucking asshole. And I'm just like, yeah, all right. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's too reductive, right? You know, it just treats everyone as just, like, you know, you're either a character A or a character B. And you got to fit right. into this little box or something. Yeah, I never thought of myself as a punk. You know what I mean? I don't. I don't even identify with that lifestyle at all. I find sure. it gross. I find it. I find it disgusting. Self destruction and wanting to destroy society. On some level, I can appreciate. But just the random, you know, meaningless self destruction and chaos. I don't know. Produce some I, good music, maybe. Yeah, that was always like that was a big thing, like. I like to think I lucked out. Like, I got into punk when I was, like, 10 or 11. But then it was, like, talking to the kids that were older, it was always just, like, a nightmare. You know, like, this kid was, like, three years older than me. And he was like, oh, you're not punk because you're 12. And I was like, 
okay, like, what the fuck does that mean? And it was, like, the same thing. Like, I got into straight edge, and it was, like, I hate actual straight edge subculture. Like, I, me same. personally, I just, I, I don't do the things, you know? That's fine. That's, that's just my, that's my own life choice. But then it's, like, people that are, like, oh, you're not straight edge because you're not vegan. I'm just, like, could you imagine trying to ruin, like, someone's chances at joining something any harder? Like, telling all these people. And that's, that was always the thing. It was like, here's the rules, according to you, right? Yeah. That you have to abide by. And uh, you see how it just hollowed out all of it has become. Yeah. Straight Edge in particular is so vile. It's basically um, a, a merch line for vegans that have tattoos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's super PC and so boring and hasn't produced any good music in forever. Yeah. And the people that started it are total lamos. There's like youth of today Nikes now. I mean, could it right. get worse? I don't think yeah. so. Yeah. It's the epitome of a sellout. That was always like kind of my hang up with it was I was like, you know, I like Minor Threat, but I was like, I think I just hate straight edge bands. And it just kind of always stuck with that. Like, I'm a big American Nightmare fan. And it's like AN started as a straight edge band, but like the lyrics weren't, you know, were nailed to the X or anything like that. They were still those heartbroken lyrics. So it was something else entirely. But bands like Gorilla Biscuits, like bands like, what the fuck's that fire starter band? Earth Crisis. <laughs> Earth Crisis. Like, yeah. Like, I hate that shit. I hate all that shit. Um, the, the straight edge <laughs> band I like the most, aside from Minor Threat's like prime output, is Ink and Dagger. Like, I think Ink and Dagger's great. And oh that, man, nothing about it was. I didn't know they were straight edge. Isn't the singer this the singer OD though, right? That's what's so fucking weird is like they were like this hyper edge band, and then at the end he was just like, yeah, fuck it, and then like he started taking drugs, and then he OD'd, and I'm like, okay. Oh god, I saw them play once. How was, was it, it? Good? Was it bad? They were great. Yeah. yeah, they were getting heckled the whole time. Oh yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> that makes complete sense. Yeah, and I think the girl in the band, the bassist, was like trying mm -hmm. to reason with the crowd, and I was just like, "Oh God, stop!" You know? Yeah. Just play. Don't don't try and argue. I don't know. But the singer was in that band, Crud, as a cult, right? That band was yeah. awesome. Yeah, I I just found out about them a couple months ago. I I did not know oh, that there okay. was anything recorded prior, and then you know I've heard a couple songs, and there's some small label that. Uh, supposedly going to put out like a discography because there was only like maybe 20 songs so oh, I'm hopeful okay. that it'll it'll hold up that's yeah, the downside knows? of 90s? not listening to music 90s does not hold up sure yeah I understand <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh, very slim pickings I would say but you know I guess because I I lived it but you just never see anyone like going crazy for like a like a, I don't know, like a 1999 era LP. I mean, sure, name yeah. one. I mean, yeah. Uh... Well, and I mean, like, it's like, I'm a big REM fan, you know, and it's like, I, I've got a hard stop with Monster, which I think was like 94. But there's like these okay. people that are just like, yeah, REM stopped being good in like 1988. And I'm like, that's like four albums. There's, there's so much. And they're just like, why even bother? And I'm like, okay, all right, that's fine. You're always going to get those purists. Yeah. Yeah. When Charles Bronson yeah. became uh, a thing, and, it, you know, we were like a straight edge band, 
there was a huge straight edge movement in Chicago at the time yeah. that was pretty alienating. I mean, we didn't fit into it at all. And it was kind of coming from this North shore, you know, rich suburb environment. Right. And then it became super politicized. So there was this very quick transition. Like if you were straight edge, well then you became like this political activist and it was just like such a turnoff right. uh, from the perspective of us as skaters you know, that we're into all kinds of stuff, but identified with maybe like the minor threat version of straight edge where it was yeah. like a personal choice. It wasn't like a shirt that you wore. It wasn't like wearing big fat X's and uh, <laughs> proclaiming certain, you know, like the whole checklist. Uh, right. Yeah. It just seems like, okay, well there's these different threads happening and uh, I'm not sure if that exists still. I'm not sure. I, uh, well, I mean, kind of like what you and I were talking about a minute ago, like the vegan edgedom is true edgedom. Like, I'm not sure how that started. Like, I know, like, Youth of Today had that, like, vegetarian. Youth of Today, for 90s. sure. Yeah, so I'm just assuming that, you know, if I would have listened to anything after the first album, Youth of Today was like, oh, we're vegan now on album two. So I'm assuming that it just kind of, like, bred from that. But yeah, it's a, it's a big thing. There's a couple kids I'm friends with, and, uh, like the one is vegan and straight edge and he like called me a blood mouth because I'm vegetarian, not vegan. And I was like, that just sounds like a cool thing from Harry Potter. Like, I don't, what is that? And he's like, well, cause you eat cheese. And I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> I don't fucking care. Yeah. Then it becomes this purity test, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Like yeah. I dealt with when I was like 12 or 13, like being told I wasn't, punk or i wasn't straight edge and i was just like yeah this really sucks <laughs> yeah, you, you couldn't just like it and make of it what you wanted right it couldn't just yeah. like factor into whatever reality you were creating as a kid right you know yeah, be it, you the movies be... you were watching or yeah you were you had to conform and like the what a paradox you know right like the whole idea is that you would do this to not conform well then I guess I have mixed opinions on conformity, but sure. I ultimately, the uh, the takeaway from all this stuff was uh, I'm better than you. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it quickly became this uh, quasi religion, and it's just you know, if anything, I guess it reveals that people need religion in their life on some level. You know, they, they need some like moral standing to judge others. I get it. Yeah. You know, I get it. Um, as far as as far as things that you're putting out now, uh, like a, mm -hmm. an active collaborator with you is James Trejo. Uh, how did you guys start working together? You know, did you were you in Denver and you saw one of these bands? Was it word of mouth? I met James in 2011 at Chaos and Chaos. He came up to the merch table and knew all the, you know, stuff I was putting out. He knew about all the bands. He, he, he like studied. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, we kept in touch after that. And he was clearly onto something. I think he was very young at that point, like mm -hmm. maybe 19, something like that, 18. Young guy. Yeah. But he had a real fire, and uh, you could tell that his charisma was infectious, and I certainly felt it just being around him. He's very high energy, 
loves to talk, very funny, very animated, very opinionated, and super driven and remarkably talented. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I credit James as really uh, being a turning point for the label. Just, you know, I, I'm going to be 46. That's pretty old. And James, <laughs> even, you know, when I met him at the time, you know, uh, I was already kind of older than most people on the scene. So it was great to meet somebody that had a vision of hardcore that aligned with my own. Right. We seemed yeah. to like the same stuff. We had the same opinions and standards and uh, he was willing to work. And I think he uh, put a lot of faith in me to help pull him along until he was, uh, until he arrived at the place where he needed to be. And uh, I think by the time he had done the civilized EP, uh, he he had arrived. You know what I mean? Like he right. he had uh, matured into this point where you could just set him loose and like look out because like everything he does is going to be incredible. Like he he never misses. He doesn't he doesn't misstep. Everything he does is just like you know it's perfect. Yeah. And he got into recording bands and just he really is the center of the Denver scene if, if it still exists after last year, but right. You know, he just has this energy that has, has just been incredible to, to be a part of. I, uh, I, yeah, like it, I don't want to say that like I had given up on like modern punk, but I was definitely separated enough from anything that wasn't like my local DIY scene. And then, you know, like touche amore or title fight, like a couple of like the big bands, and then, like, hearing Cadaver Dog, I was just like, oh, shit, like, this is, this is insane. Like, this is something cool. And then that kind of, that pushed me into going backwards with Youth Attack bands and hearing these things where I'm like, oh, no, there's plenty of great hardcore from the last 20 years. It's just not signed to Epitaph Records or anything else. Yeah, you like, know, at this point, you kind of have to hunt for it, but... Uh... Yeah. Hoax I guess was that's a, the like, nature of, uh, go ahead. The, uh, hoax and like cult ritual, both of those, like they, they came from going backwards and I was just like, just so excited that there was interesting things and they were all for the most part on like one label, you know, like youth attack was putting out <laughs> doing them. Well, yeah. For me, those two bands were defining of their periods. Cult Ritual was absolutely unbelievable live. I mean, they were just, to this day, probably one of the top three bands I've ever seen. And they were just phenomenal, jaw-dropping. Just the most intense band you'll, you'll, ever, you'll ever see. I, I couldn't even put it into, uh, into words. The words couldn't do it justice to see Dan Rossiter singing. It was just like it was transcendent or something. It, yeah, it felt like you were like no longer in your body watching this band. And all of them had this, this, uh, this you know like machine-like energy. It was just, it was just so pummeling and explosive. And then, yeah, Hoax came along a couple years later, and they, I think, really changed the game in a major way, just in terms of redirecting the sound. And bringing in outside influences from black metal in ways that no one had ever done, and and I think some death metal by the LP, but um, yeah, just the riff style, the idea that you would combine, say, you know, disorder maybe with uh, DYS and Emperor, 
is just yeah. so bizarre. And they just crystallized it in this way. And the lyrics um, just brought it to a whole new level. I remember seeing them play in Texas after Youth of Today. And Youth of Today did this whole like nostalgic set, you know, they were covering all these songs, whole crowd singing along. And then uh, Hoax started in the next room immediately after they finished. And it was just like night and day, you know, it was like seeing this sort of cheesy washed up band, like kind of just like sucking up their glory and this like the total inverse in the next room and people were just like going insane i mean the the um the energy that the band was able to just uh release into the into the room was just like nothing i'd ever i'd ever experienced yeah jesse's performance as a front man brought this whole new level to hardcore and i don't think that really anything has come close to matching what they've done since they broke up. Yeah. There's been a ton of great records, but since they called it quits, I haven't seen anything that like marks a huge transitional moment in hardcore or, you know, everyone's kind of like doing their thing, but you have these occasional bands like call ritual and hoax who draw in all these people from other scenes and kind of bring them together. You know, you had everyone checking them out. Everyone was into them. Right. Yeah, that well, and I, mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's happening. I, I don't. I don't know. Uh, Akron has a very like active DIY scene, but like punk and hardcore, it's not so much like it's separated, but it's less in like Akron DIY and more in like the Akron punk scene. Akron DIY, it's, yeah. well, it's open, you know, and it's it's inviting. It's very much so like, oh, here's an emo band, or here's this duo that's doing something that sounds like the music from Twin Peaks, or this or that, you know. And all of it's cool, but then it's like you go to like the shitty punk bar to see like four hardcore bands instead of one on this very mixed bag of a uh, lineup. And Ohio as a whole has a lot of cool like heavy bands that are coming out and they're doing things but it's separated around you know like one or two cool bands in cleveland uh like three dudes that are doing very like youth attack inspired things in columbus and then like oh really other bands that we're we're friends with here you know but i i don't know it's it comes and goes in waves uh but yes, that, that Columbus thing, that is absolutely true. Uh, I will butcher that guy's name. I think it's Ilya Nekasovi. Um, he's a huge fan of okay. Youth Attack, and that's how we became friends. Uh, he plays guitar in a band called End Love, and then he was like, yeah, I just really want people to know that Ohio has good punk, so me and the frontman of End Love, we just keep doing these like quarantine projects so that we can just keep releasing it. He's like in a similar vein to how Youth Attack like puts stuff out very actively. He's like, that's what we want to do so that people will pay more attention to Ohio. And they've done. I think, well, they actually contacted me. Oh, really? Oh, that's great. Yeah, I just don't have the time. Uh, sure. But no, I, I, I understand. To the recording and uh, <laughs> um, and I appreciate it. You know, I appreciate the interest yeah. and stuff. But yeah, yeah, I checked them out. I like what they're doing. I like the the first song in that record. Uh, is is really good. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, you know, I'm like, I'm spread thin constantly. You know, I work about 10 hours a day. And you've spent two hours letting us like punish you with questions. So, I mean, I'm feeling that that gets into the, 
you know that cuts into it yeah somehow every person we talk to the episode they're on just gets a little longer every time (laughs) (laughs) well you know i i tend to get going you know i never stop oh man you guys ran with italian horror for like 30 40 minutes and i was just very like happy and just proud to be here because you both are very enthusiastic about it (laughs) and i learned more than i had ever seen in my entire life in 40 minutes oh well you know if you've got a lot of time to kill (laughs) you could all you could just spend you know the next thousand hours um watching that stuff you said black sunday is a good place to jump in I would say so. Yeah. You know, you want to work your way up chronologically. I think that makes sense. Um, I would just watch all the Mario Bava movies. Looks like I got home. I think that'll, that'll give you. Yeah, I would say so. It's worth it, you know? And, you know, for me, it's not just watching these movies. They're communicating something to me on... I don't know, some sort of uh, subconscious level where I'm going to use that excitement to make something. At least that's what I think. Oh, absolutely. I've always been joking that the music I create is just the lost soundtrack to a Hideshi Hina movie. That's what I've been trying to do. Oh, I don't know who that is, but uh, I like that. You he know. was a Japanese... Well, still, I think he's still alive. He's got to be ancient by now. But he was a Japanese director more famously known for directing the second guinea pig movie. Oh, okay. And those movies were... Well, still are sincerely important to me as my growth as a person and in the horror genre. Because, like, even today, they hold up to an unrealistic standard of realistic special effects that look disgusting and turn my stomach every single time i see it and uh i've never seen those they're literally just special effects showcases they're like look how realistic we can kill somebody and yeah if you don't know that they're movies they look damn real to this day and uh i've heard that like cutting out eyeballs and stuff yeah Especially when they get to use, like, they were some of the first examples of, like, latex body parts. And that's why they were so shocking, because they had that brilliant idea to use stuff like that. So you could actually see the skin get cut, ripped off, and, like, it's just, it's really cool. And I've been trying to recreate the feeling that those movies gave me all that time ago by making music that sounds like it would be the soundtrack to that. Yeah, you know, that's a good motive. I think that's a good uh, prompt. Or alternatively, uh, as my older brother unfortunately put it, this sounds like stuff you would play for people trick-or-treating at your house. (laughs) I'll have to check it out. Hell yeah. Now, see, using that energy, what have you, uh, like, taken exactly from Italian horror? Is there anything specific that's motivated the influence of those towards you? Well, I don't actually like gore and seeing people getting killed necessarily. It's more of a uh, a mood or a feeling I extract that I try to replicate, you know, on a maybe gut level. Um, where like the work I create for bands, it, they're like these disaster scenes, you know, caught at the moment, you know, and like there's just a moment of chaos that you are startled by. 
So I, th I think that's maybe the most like literal interpretation I could say, but I think there's something else too, where I guess I'm tapping into the thought process of someone like Fulci and the way he would edit scenes together or depict uh, narratives is disjointed, but it's like he wanted to just sort of stick to the good stuff and the rest didn't matter. So he had this way of condensing that I find interesting and, uh, you know, uh, framing. And so how do, you, how do you portray something and have it be visually interesting, you know, and oh, to draw into that process? Yeah, I think that that's, you know, probably the most accurate way I can describe it. So I'm not trying to actually replicate Fulci. I'm trying to utilize what I perceive as his motivation or excitement in creating exciting looking work. You know, that makes a lot of sense. I completely understand that whole process. Mm. Well, good. Uh, I think that's a loss on a lot of people. Um, you know who talks about this a lot is Trey Askoff from Morbid Angel, where he is a huge Van Halen fan. And he said in an interview where, like, obviously he's not going to be Eddie Van Halen playing guitar. But he wanted to take that inspiration, that, uh, that daringness to go into the uncharted with his playing to bring about something deep from within so or so he believed that was like lurking in his depths and sort of manifesting it into reality uh just by tapping into his creativity to the furthest extent other people have talked about this too like david lynch or whatnot but uh I, that that sort of thing appeals to me where you know the inspiration you actually want to take from people is not to sound like them not to be like them or look like them it's to utilize the energy or excitement or motivation to create something of their own. Like, obviously you want to be inspired, but uh, you don't want to do that literally. You want to take maybe their application process, not their actual output. All right, all right. So you just want to see, basically take inspiration from their process and apply it to your own self and see what happens through utilization of that. Yeah. Because what's the point in just copying? Uh, they've already done it. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's no way you could replicate something completely that you uh, like. You hear something and you're like, oh, I want to do that. But you're not that person and you're not that area that's not you so you really can't do exactly that yeah and i mean morbid angel did that because they're not inspired by thrash and it was like thrash metal and then it was morbid angel at least in my view you know there were other I, bands of course i do love morbid angel <laughs> and uh i think i think that they were definitely one of those bands from like the late 80s early 90s that was able to stand out for something good you know like there was a couple black metal bands where it's like they they were able to stand out for whatever they did you know like that dude that killed himself or the dude that you know who killed the other member um, yeah and i'm like yeah okay that's cool i guess but then it's like you listen to the music and it's like 
this is kind of shitty. Like, I, I don't necessarily enjoy it. I love it. Oh, you don't like it? <laughs> no, I mean, like, I... You should get... I, yeah. I think my biggest hang-up was, like, the... Like, the way they recorded some of it. I'm like, you guys went out of your way to use, like, a headset to record all of this. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Yeah, when I but first then, heard uh, Bursum Philosophum, I was startled by how thin and wimpy comparatively it was to a band like, I don't know, Deicide or something. Sure. Where, yeah. like, Deicide is, like, bombastic. It's so heavy and crushing. And then Burzum, by comparison, it had almost a punk production, or at least yeah. as it, it sounded to me at the time. And it was so slow and repetitive. I just didn't get it. You know, I'd never heard anything like that. And then you just listen to it and listen to it, and there's this moment where it clicks, and you're just like, it's so satisfying. His changes are so – they're so perfect, you know. The riffs would move in this perfect moment, and guy's a genius. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like that. I like having to wrestle my way through listening to something until it clicks, you know, because maybe my natural inclination is to not like it, to think like, oh, it's too this or that or whatever. Right. But in, in trying to get into the headspace of these musicians – you start to appreciate their decisions. I, uh, I was hesitant to listen to Bolt Thrower. I was like, "Oh man, everyone's gonna talk. Everyone talks him up. Like I'm gonna hate it. It's gonna suck." And then, like a month ago, I finally put on one of their albums, and I was like, "Oh, okay, this is actually pretty good." You know, like I was, I was so nervous for so many <laughs> years because I was just like, "I don't want to hate this. Like, I don't want to be that guy that's just like, actually, Bolt Thrower kind of sucks." So it was just easier to be that guy that was like, I've never heard them. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I was into it. You know, I thought it was cool. Um, but it's, it's, I always feel like that with so many metal bands where I'm just like, I, not even like I, I don't want to like them because everyone else does. Just like, I don't want to have to explain why I don't like them. And that's always <laughs> the, because like the metal scene, I, there's so much more <laughs> like, Everyone's aggressive, but well, not so for fast. any, like, real reason, you know? It's just, they're aggressive. Well, it's hostile music, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I appreciate sure. that, though. I mean, you know, it, it's music that's meant to remain extreme, and sure. the fact that it really isn't is is a bummer, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Slayer stopped being cool after, like, 1989, and they still made, like, 20 more albums. <laughs> Uh, well, they're like thing. a business. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, like you know, I I've never liked Kiss, but I mean, like Kiss is considered a metal band to someone, and they are like a <laughs> they're a corporation. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean these you know these guys like Mick Jagger or whatever they're more like investment brokers than they are uh, musicians. Yeah, you know they're they're thinking about this stuff from a money standpoint. I mean. The Rolling Stones started doing these huge tours as their creativity waned. It was like their bid to save themselves because of Keith's drug addiction or whatever. But like their right. their songwriting was was uh, beginning to fall off, and it's just interesting that that's when they became actually rich. You know, yeah. Prior yeah, to yeah, that, yeah. they were literally going on tour in like station wagons and stuff. Yeah, and, like, I think it was, like, the first three Rolling Stones albums, it's, you know, like, two-thirds of them, or two-thirds of the tracks are, uh, 
like covers of like blues musicians that tons of people hadn't heard and that's fine you know like bob dylan did it and he made out just fine but i was like these are much better songs or reworkings of songs than whatever some girls was or any other album that much later in their career i mean i get it i like some girls but when they were doing those early records and covering all blues artists it was actually i think paul mccartney and george harrison that said you have to write your own songs and they were like oh yeah okay and that's (laughs) when they wrote time is on my side which is a perfect song yeah so it's just like they had to cross that barrier and realize like oh we can actually do this but I give them a lot of credit because the idea of doing that is so unthought of. It was just, I, you know, it was just, I don't think it even crossed their minds. Write our own songs? No way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I promise we will uh, we'll stop asking you a thousand questions. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh... Oh, yeah. Thanks. Now, before we let you go, is there anything you want to plug and promote like that's coming soon or you just think deserves a shout out and let people know about? And I can provide links to those things, too, in the description of this so people know where to find it easily. Well, we just did five releases and they're all sold out now, but uh, you can check all of it out <laughs> on Bandcamp. So uh, there's more stuff in, in, in the work. So hopefully this year I'll get at least one more major update out if not two so uh coming up next is going to be the cadaver dog 12 inch that has been in the works for a while um it's called bread to fight and it is a vicious a vicious recording it's i i think it's the best thing james has ever done he did everything himself he played all the parts and uh he recorded it and it's, it's just a monster so we've been sitting on that, and uh, I can't wait for it. I'm very excited to hear that. Hell yeah. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much. Um, thank you very much, again, sincerely. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right. <laughs>